0: Colossians chapter 2, we're going to read from verse 8, and we're going to read into chapter 3, right into chapter 3. Paul writes this, Colossians 2 verse 8. Don't let anyone lead you astray, or don't let anyone take you captive with empty philosophy and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and the high evil powers of this world, and not from Christ. For in Christ, the fullness of God lives in a human body, and you are complete through your union with Christ. He is the Lord of every ruler and authority in the universe. When you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not with a physical procedure. It was a spiritual procedure, the cutting away of your sinful nature. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized, and with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. And then God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins. That's good news, isn't it? He cancelled the record that contained the charges against us. He took it and he destroyed it by nailing it to Christ's cross. And in this way, God disarmed the evil rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross of Christ. So don't let anyone separate you. Don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink or for not celebrating holy days or new moon moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. For these rules were only shadows of the real thing, Christ himself. Don't let anyone condemn you or disqualify you by insisting on self-denial. And don't let anyone say you must worship angels, even though they have said they had visions about this. These people claim to be humble, but their sinful hearts have made them proud. And they are not connected to Christ, the head of the body. For we are joined together in his body by his strong sinews. And we grow only as we get our nourishment and strength from God. You have died with Christ. And he has set you free from the evil powers of this world. So why do you keep on following rules of the world such as don't handle, don't eat, don't touch? Such rules are mere human teaching about things that has gone as soon as we use them. These rules may seem to be wise because they require strong devotion, humility, and severe bodily discipline, but they have no effect when it comes to conquering a person's thoughts and desires, evil thoughts and desires. Or to go back to another way of saying that, there's no value in curbing their self indulgence. Since you've been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits at God's right hand in a place of honor and power. Let heaven fill your thoughts. Do not think only about the things down here on earth, but you died when Christ died, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our real life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. Amazing passage, isn't it? Amazing passage. But there's there's a lot in that we won't cover. We certainly won't cover everything this morning, but uh, don't handle, don't eat, don't touch. Don't handle don't eat don't touch paul says these are mere man-made rules i mean what what do you do with that kind of advice don't handle don't eat don't touch the man-made rules what do you do with that kind of advice there's a bottle of bleach under my kitchen sink in the cupboard at home and it has a big label on the side that says it's toxic and is hazardous to health and it clearly states that i shouldn't drink it we've all seen a label it's a man-made rule isn't it But I'd be an absolute idiot if, on the basis of this verse, I decided to gulp down a whole gallon of bleach. I'd be an absolute idiot, wouldn't I? There's an electric substation at the end of our street where we live. And on the fence around it, there's a huge sign that reads, Danger! Keep out! High voltage! We've seen those signs, haven't we? They are man-made rules, aren't they? They're man-made rules, and yet... I would be classified as insane, rightly classified as insane, if I decided on the basis of this verse to climb over the fence and play tag with an electric cable that carried a thousand volts of electricity. I'd be a plonker, wouldn't I? I would deserve what was coming to me. There's a big fence around the lions when I visit the zoo. The fence is there to stop me handling the lions and to stop the lions from handling me. And this text is not in any way, shape, nor form. No authority is in this text in giving me consent on climbing over that fence and deciding to snuggle a 400-pound carnivorous cat. I would deserve the welcome that cat would give me. Right? We, we know, I know I'm stating the obvious here. I know I'm stating the obvious and it needs to be stated. Because unfortunately, somewhere in history, there is some plonker who's climbed over a fence... On the, ver- on the basis of a text like this and he decided to snuggle a big carnivorous cat. All right, so I'm stating the obvious, but there's a context to these words from Paul. There's a context. Paul is not against rules per se, all right? There's a reason we wear our seatbelts. There's a reason why you don't drive 70 miles per hour down the wrong way on a 30 mile per hour street. He's not saying, Paul is not saying there's no such thing as good behaviors and there's no such thing as destructive behaviors. And in the next passage that, Helen will share with us next week. She's out preaching this morning, but she'll share with us next week. Paul is going to encourage the believers to put away rage and malice and lies and instead put on kindness and gentleness and peace and love. He's not saying there aren't rules per se. He's also, Paul's also not against ceremonies. And he's not necessarily against expressions of faith either. Paul prays. Paul encourages other people to pray. Paul sings. He encourages other people to sing. Paul breaks bread, he does communion, he takes part in baptisms, and it might shock us if if we're into this kind of thinking, it might shock us, but in the book of Acts, Paul, as a Jewish Christian, he takes a Nazarite vow, and he helps some other Jewish Christians take Nazarite vows, it's a bit complex, isn't it? So Paul knows there can be certain things that we can do that can help us devotionally and express our faith, so what is Paul saying in this passage, what is this passage about? Well, Let's start somewhere else. I think it helps sometimes to start somewhere else. So a number of years ago, there was a late Catholic writer, a great writer, a guy called Brennan Manning, who wrote a book called Abba's Child. Abba's Child. Now, it's got nothing to do with a Swedish pop group. There's nothing about Dancing Queen or Mamma Mia in the book. Abba is this affectionate Aramaic word for father. It's more akin to dad, daddy. And father is a term that describes God's character throughout the scriptures. And Manning is looking at the fact that we are Children of God and what that means. And in his book, he suggests, like I did last time, I spoke a couple of weeks ago, he suggests that many of us people, we struggle with our self-worth, and we struggle with it so to such an extent that we seek validation, and we do things to seek validation and acceptance from other things, from external sources, such as our achievements, and such as our possessions, such as the opinions of other people. And ultimately, we find that those things are fleeting, and they are ultimately unsatisfactory. Our true identity, Manning suggests, is not determining what we do or what we earn and how much we have and how much we don't have or what others think of us. Instead, he says we should define ourselves radically as beloved by God. We should define ourselves radically as beloved by God. This is our true self in the love of God. Every other identity we create for ourselves is an utter illusion. Define yourself radically as loved by God. Every other identity is an illusion. And if you've ever read Brandon and he's he's a fascinating writer. He's very vulnerable. He's very raw. He's transparent about his flaws, his brokenness, and in his own words, his own unlovability. And yet in the midst of his own mess and mayhem, he experiences this thing called unconditional love. This love that embraces him regardless of what he's like. And he's not saying his brokenness has qualified him for such a love. And he's not saying... And he understands that also his brokenness and imperfection doesn't disqualify him from that love either. He realizes God loves. God so loved the world that he gave. That even while we were dead in our sins, God loved us and reached out to us. And he wasn't saying his life was right, or everything was okay, or he was doing things right. He just realized that his starting point in life was not about trying to get God to love me. That instead of striving for something in his own strength, what he had to do is let God's strength act upon him. We understand the way that works. Now in another book that Manning wrote, he said this about himself. He said, my deepest awareness of myself is that I'm deeply loved by Jesus Christ. And I've done nothing to earn it or deserve it. I am deeply loved by Jesus Christ and I've done nothing to earn it or deserve it. Now, unlike the writers I mentioned last time I spoke, Manning wasn't trying to convince irreligious people of having faith in God. He wrote mainly to religious people because, as he says, most religious people find it easy to believe in God, that there is a God that exists. What they struggle with is the fact that God loves them. They find it easy to believe God exists. What they struggle with is the fact that God loves them. And he recognized that unless we grab hold of this identity and that we root ourselves in the fact that God unconditionally loves us, as has been shown and embodied in Jesus' life and death and resurrection, then in the place of that identity, what we'll do is we'll grasp hold of a negative self-image of of ourselves that views ourselves as moral lepers. That God does not want anything to do with us until we do something to clean ourselves up. And so in that case, what happens is we live under this shadow of low self-esteem. We enslave ourselves to shame and remorse and unhealthy guilt. And we constantly find ourselves under this accusation of self-hatred. And that's how Brennan Manning spent most of his life. He originally felt about himself in that same way. He thought, if there is a God, that's how he thought, and if God exists, then this God doesn't want anything to do with me with how I am at the present time. And because he saw God as some fickle, easily irritated, small-minded accountant who only was friends with people who were in positive credit, every time Manning kind of saw himself a negative credit, he wrongly assumed that it was up to him to close the gap between him and God. I think a lot of people think it's up to us to wrongly close the gap we think is between us and God. And so what would Brenning Manon do? Well, he'd try and be good. He would try his best to be good. He would try and promote himself. He would try and change himself. He would try and lift himself and of course he would fail again and again and again to hit the standard of the God that he thought he had. And he, when he failed and because he thought God would want nothing to do with a failure, he would sink deeper into his guilt. And in his guilt, his guilt would lead him to seek solace because he couldn't seek solace in God because he thought well, God wouldn't want anything to do with him. He would then instead seek solace in his alcoholism and his womanizing, and it would enslave him even more to the problems that he was having in his personal demons. And in turn, he'd feel more guilty for going back to his alcoholism and his womanizing, which meant that next time he would try even harder again and set a higher standard. And every time he'd set a higher standard, he'd fail again. And so on, and so on, and so forth. He'd go for this loop of guilt and guilt. As Manning puts it, he said he had this myriad of fictitious ideas about God, these multiple false images of God that imprisoned him in a house of fear. He lived in a house of fear. And he was only grasping the unconditional God, love of God that pulled him out of this clay pit of human thinking. He had to let go of his impoverished ideas of God's. He stopped trusting in his own self-effort and instead he trusted the love of God as embodied in Christ Jesus. That's good news, isn't it? As Manning reminds us, Our religion never begins with what we do for God. Our religion never begins with what we we do for God. It always starts with what God has done for us, the great and wondrous things that God dreamed of and achieved for us in Jesus Christ. Can I read that quote again? Our religion never begins with what we do for God. It always starts with what God has done for us the great and wondrous things that God dreamed of and achieved for us in Jesus Christ. And so I have to ask you this morning, when it comes to you and God, what is your starting point? Is it about you trying to get you, to, for God, to, trying to get you, sorry, trying to get God to love you? Is it about you trying to get God to notice you? Is it about you trying to get God to like you? Or... Is it a response, a participating embrace of the unconditional love that God has already embodied toward you in Jesus Christ? Which one is it? And there's a big difference between the two. If you want, I'd liken the difference between choreography and dance. Not that I can do either. I would liken the difference between choreography and dance. So if I was to give a name, if I was to label Manning's self-propelling approach... when his starting point was his own efforts, I'd say it was human choreography. And what I might mean by this is that in his thinking, which is common thinking, it's like a strict choreographed dance routine. That's what it is, experiencing God. As long as if we think experiencing God is about making sure that we put our feet in all the right places at all the right time. And so when it comes to choreography, you're not really following the music as such. What you're trying to do is follow a strict set of instructions. And so what we do is we view God as a judge like on Strictly. And he sat behind a panel. And if we get our footwork right, if we get our movements right, if we get our choreography right, then God will give us a good score. And if we get it wrong, then God will disqualify us. And so in human choreography, everything is dependent upon our footwork. You dare not put a foot wrong because you lose. That's human choreography. But grace is different. At least I hope it is. It's got to be, otherwise it's not grace, is it? Unconditional love is nothing like human choreography. See, human grace is more like a dance. See, in dance, when you really dance, not that I can really dance, but when you can really dance, it's not about following some set of instructions, is it? It's about following the rhythm of the music. You don't really follow the rules as such. You're just overtaken by the the music itself and the rhythm of it. And it's not that everything goes, don't get me wrong, but dance is about responding to the music itself, not instructions. And so in the divine dance, God is not some judge sat behind a judge's panel trying to score us. In the divine dance, God is on the dance floor with us as a dance partner. God is wanting to dance with us. And in grace, regardless of how terrible our footwork is, and regardless of how fantastic our footwork is either, God approaches us and invites us to take hold of who he is and what he does and entrust ourselves to his movements, to learn to move in rhythm to the music of who God is. Can we see the difference? See, instead of leaning on my own understanding, as a proverb puts it, instead of leaning in my own understanding and my own footwork, I acknowledge God and I trust Him to direct my steps. That's different. I learn to trust through dance. I allow the movement of my dance partner to shape the purposes of my steps. So it's not me trying to get God to move. I'm just caught up in His movements. And I'm transformed through that. It's still transformation. It's just the other way around. See, being in Christ is not human choreography. It's a dance. Or well, to put it another way, our faith is not about trying to attract God by our fancy footwork. Our faith is an embrace of God's movements. It's not about trying, our faith is not about trying to attract God through our steps. Our faith is about embracing God in his steps. See, the problem is, with human choreography, like it did in Brennan Manning's experience, it's, the problem is it's a self-driven project. It's a man-made project and it often props up our ideas of God and it often leads to us being directed by fear and guilt instead of awe and inspired delights. It's the opposite thing. And in short, because if we have this guilt and fear, we think we're responsible for attaining God, then what we do is because we think we're responsible in attaining God, what we're doing is cutting God out of The thing out of the solution to the problem. And as I said the other week, the problem in the first place is that we're seeking an identity outside of God in the first place. So cutting God out of the solution is just a repeat of the problem. If that makes sense. We think if we can get our footwork right, we'll find God. But it's all a self-effort. It's still all about us. And it's still actually, as Paul writes at the end of chapter 2, it's still more self-indulgence our self-made efforts are still self-indulgence the other problem with choreography is you can be really good at it that's a big problem you can be fantastic at choreography you can even add in extra levels of steps and footwork you can add in a load of extra routines and instructions and you could outshine everybody else and your your footwork could be immaculate you could be the greatest greatest dance choreographer in the world but it's not dance Choreography is not dance. I can do the Macarena. I can't dance. I used to be able to do Wigfield Saturday night with my eyes closed. But I can't dance. You can know all the moves. You can know all the rules. You can keep your religious footwork perfectly, even the extra flourishes that you add into it. You can do it so well, you can do it without God. And that's the problem, isn't it? That's the problem. The reality is choreography is still self-maintained. It's still a self-discipline. It's still a performance. It's not a dance. It's still more self-indulgence. See, the Hebrew prophets, if you know your Bible, in the Old Testament at times were challenged by, you know, they challenged Israel on their choreography. And it wasn't that they failed to get the rules or keep the rules, although they did do that as well. But at times, the problem was the opposite the problem sometimes was that their footwork was flawless. Their choreography was great. There was times when Israel kept the Sabbath rules. There was time when Israel kept the sacrifices. There was time when Israel did the festivals and even the extra added feasts. And they did it all perfectly. And yet, as the Hebrew prophets remind them, their hearts were far away from God. They learnt the rules, but they didn't grasp God. And he didn't let God grasp them. And that's the fundamental issue. God's character is what he wants us to grab hold of. He wants them to know his heart for mercy and justice and love. And they didn't grasp any of that. But their footwork was fantastic. That's problematic. Paul, who wrote this letter, as I said a number of weeks ago when I introduced it, his footwork was brilliant. In fact, Paul was very zealous with his footwork. His choreography was excellent. He prided himself on being the best at his choreography. In fact, his footwork, his choreography, led him to exterminate those who he thought their footwork wasn't perfect or wasn't great and it didn't measure up. And then in the midst of doing that, he gets knocked off his high horse and he realizes that even though he's kept his choreography, he hasn't had older of God at all in all of this. So again, what is our starting point? What is our starting point with God? Am I learning to dance with the divine or am I doing human choreography? Which is it? Now, my analogy is not perfect, I admit. It could be easily misunderstood and it will break if you push it too far like any analogy. But I think it's got some scriptural merit. And the reason I'm saying that is in verse 19 of this passage in Colossians, Paul, as he did in chapter 1, he reminds the Colossian believers that Jesus is the head of the body. He is the head of the body. It gets its leading from the head, doesn't it? He is the head, as Olivier has already reminded us. And so Paul says to him, "We only grow in our connection with him. You can't do it outside. We only grow when he is the source of our nourishment. You can't do it without him. You're not meant to do it without him either." And there's a word, there's a Greek word that he uses in verse 19 that is often translated as being nourished. Or is being supplied. And it's this word, epicorigio I'm not going to say that too many times because it's hard to say. epicorigio And the root of that word is a word called korygos. And it's actually where our word choreography comes from, which doesn't help my analogy. But there you go. But in the ancient Greek Roman world, a korygos wasn't just a word. It was a person. A korygos was a wealthy patron who lavishly supplied everything that was needed from his own expenses to put on a stage production. That's who a Korygos was. If there was a show, if there was a dance, if there was a festival that involved dancing and music, then you needed a Korygos. And the corygos again, would lavishly supply everything. If you wanted a modern equivalent, and you're into your TVs and films, we could say it's like an executive producer, if that's the modern equivalent. And they, they were the people who purchased everything. They were the one who purchased and supplied the costumes, the scenery, and the music. And so literally speaking, a choregos means leader of the chorus. Or, as some Christians came to word it in later generations, the Lord of the dance. That's what it means. The Lord of the dance. Jesus is the Lord of the dance. Don't worry, you're not going to sing the song. Not that I can remember many of the words for that Lord of the dance song. And I certainly can't dance like Michael Flatterley does either. Uh, when it comes to, our stick to the Macarena. Uh, but you know, Lord of the dance. And Jesus wants, Paul wants believers to know that you're not the one deciding the steps. It's not on your steps. It's not on your movements. Allow who he is to move you. Move in rhythm to the music and the staging and the clothing that Jesus supplies at his expense, not your expense. That's the difference. His expense, not your expense. Follow Jesus' lead. Dance to his beat, beat, Paul is saying. You don't need to follow the choreography of the past, which was just the shadow of the reality that's now come in Jesus. And you certainly don't need to be enslaved by mere human footwork, claiming you need to debase yourself or deny yourself or harm yourself and worship angels. Again, to have used Brennan Manning's word, Paul wants the Colossian believers to know and he wants us to know that our religion never begins with what we do for God. It starts with what God does for us. And to push that further, it continues with what God does for us. And to push that further, it ends with what God does for us. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. And Paul is saying this because there's other voices creeping into the church like they still do in modern times because of the culture around us. And this whisperings of what became known as Gnosticism, which I've touched on before, which is a blend of other kind of religious ideas that were taken and then mixed into practices that were bent out of shape from the Jewish law and twisted out of shape and served with their own ideas and, and were served alongside angelic obsession and obsession with elemental powers and all. I've said this before. And as I've said in previous parts of the series, Gnostic thinking, well, it denied the supremacy not just the supremacy, but it also denied the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. He is sufficient. The reality says, I'm not. He is. I'm not. And they thought, the Gnostic kind of ideas, they thought that you needed more than Jesus to encounter the whole of the divine. You had to go through some rigid practices and some self-debasing kind of rites in order to purchase entrance into higher and higher and higher levels of knowledge and spiritual experience. And they weren't keen on the body either. Like with the rest of the creation, they saw the human body as a material prison that needed to be released from. And so they were happy to put human bodies for some pretty rough stuff in order to purchase this knowledge and these experiences. Now adding to this issue, adding to this problem, is also the presence of something called mystery cults. And mystery cults in the ancient world, including the city of Colossae, were really popular. Really popular. And they're as old as ancient Egypt. And actually mystery cults still exist today, which is a shame. Which is a shame. And there would have been, you need to appreciate this, there would have been believers in the church, Gentiles who had come into the church from a background of these mystery cults and their ideas, and they would have brought these things in. Now, mystery cults were big on initiation rites. Or to put that another way, they were really keen on choreography in order to achieve a higher and higher level and to get closer and closer and to achieve a bigger union with the God. And to add to that, the more gods and the more elemental powers and the more angelic beings you could unify yourself with, the better is how they thought it. Now an example of this, and I'm sorry if I'm going to bore you a little bit this morning, but an example of this can be found in a second century story called The Golden Ass. is a nice title for a story, isn't it? It's a nickname for that story, The Golden Ass. And it's a story that follows a character called Lucius, who is transformed into an ass because he is greedy and he is lustful. Which, have a really have a, You could really say he was acting like an ass to begin with, couldn't you? And he just really manifested who he was really, which... I think it's what C.S. Lewis does in his story, one of his stories too. But he is later restored, in the story he's later restored by the goddess Isis. And because he's restored, he decides he wants to become part of her cult. He's chosen to become part of her cult. Now he can't just join her cult, he can't just turn up. He has to go through an initiation process. And so he has to immerse himself seven times in the sea to purify himself. He has to abstain from certain foods and strong drink. And he has to purchase himself some new garments, some new clothes, all at his own expense. He has to do it all at his own expense. He also has to spend long hours setting his sights, if I was going to use that term, on the statue of this goddess Isis, as well as learning from secret texts, and then going for a very physical simulation of entering into and returning from the realm of the dead. Sound familiar? Any of that sound familiar? And shockingly, After he goes through all of these initiation rites and he enters into the cult of Isis, he receives another vision telling him that he's not quite there yet. And actually, there's been stage one, but you have to go through another second stage of initiation choreographed steps. And so at his own expense again, he has to go through some more self-denying rituals of don't touch, don't eat, don't handle. And if Lucius thought he was enlightened the first time, well, apparently that was just stage one. And so, unsurprisingly, even after going through stage two, he's still not there yet. And he has to fork out some more expense, and he has to go through stage three. And on, and on, and on it goes. Now, he's troubled by this, but at the same time, he's told that he's only asked to do this because he's deemed to be worthy. And if he was unworthy, he wouldn't be asked. You have to be worthy, apparently. And then you have to pay out of your own expense. It sounds a bit of a farce, doesn't it? Now, it's these sorts of mystery cults that, and their false theology and their false choreography that is in the background of what Paul's saying in this passage. See, there's people trying to entice Christians into this so called deeper spiritual truths, in deeper knowledge. And they're doing it by saying that they are worthy to know. All right? So at the same time, they are also condemning other Christians by saying that they are not worthy to know these deeper spiritual truths. And so there are those who are being led astray, as Paul says in verse 8. And there's those that are being condemned and being disqualified in verse 18 and verse 16. And if you wanted to know these deeper truths, then like Lucius in the story, you would have to pay You would have to pay and you'd have to go for these initiation rites. Your footwork would be at your expense. And in the minds of these false teachers, again, it's not just only that Jesus isn't supreme and that he's the best of the best and he is the best. You don't need anything else. But he's not a choregos either. He's not sufficient. And so unlike a few commentators, I don't think the issue in Colossians is Jewish Christians telling Gentile Christians that they need to be circumcised in order to be Christian. That's an issue Paul deals with in Galatians And Philippians, but I think the issue here is people from mystery cults thinking that the Church of Jesus Christ is just another mystery cult, and it's not. Thank God, it's not. And to be honest, though, with its language of immersion in water, which the church talked about, with its language of having a new nature and new clothing, as Paul's going to talk about in the next passage. With its history in Judaism, with its own ceremonies of food laws and circumcision, I can understand why people coming from a background of mystery cults would think that one was like the other, but this is not that. But if you're the kind of person who's previously had this choreographed approach to God, then I can understand how you take elements from your own cultural background, and then you'd misapply Israel's Sabbath rules and their food laws and even circumcision, And then twist them into some aesthetic kind of choreographed initiation, right? Thinking that doing such things gets you closer to God. Now I need to add here that these Jewish practices, even in their original context, they were never about getting closer to God. None of them were. And their original intent was to remind and retell and rehearse what God had already done to get close to God there were ways in their own time of saying that our faith begins and ends with God's work. And of course, there's a bigger complex conversation regarding Paul and his relationship with all this. But for Paul, distorting these things and then imposing these things on people saying that these are steps to get to God is all man-made, man-centered, self-indulgent, religious nonsense. And we're going to shock us this morning, but there are no steps you can take or need to take to get close to god anything that suggests you do is ass like behavior it's a golden ass and as paul has made clear right from the opening of this letter right in its very first verses in verses 1 to 6 nobody is saved because of something they know that nobody else knows the gospel is not a secret The gospel is not a secret that only a few people with the right footwork can access. The gospel is a public announcement. It's good news. News means everyone has access to it. Everyone can hear it. It's good news that's going out to all people, everywhere, as Paul says. And it's the gospel that is changing lives as people receive it. It's not people changing their lives in order to receive the gospel. Do we get that? The gospel is changing lives when people receive it. It's not people changing their lives to get the gospel. And in this passage, in the passage we've just read, Paul is making it clear that nobody is saved because of what they did do or what they did not do. What matters is not our man-made initiation rites or our self-indulging, self-denying, and really God-denying practices, but Jesus' self-emptying, victorious embodiment of God's gracious, forgiving and life-giving approach to us. We don't step to God. God stepped to us. If we get that wrong, we might as well take grace out of the equation. I mean, often Christians, and I'm not sure I agree with it, but I understand it. Often Christians, we say, Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. And it, again, it, It's a confusing term. But what we're saying is it's not about our steps to God. It's the fact that God in Christ came to us. As Paul writes, I was dead. I don't know if you know what it's like being dead, but you can't do anything when you're dead. You can try. It just means whatever efforts you've got, hey, they're pointless. That's the point, they're pointless. God acts on us. It's not me who raised myself up. God raised me up. It's not me who got God to my, forgive my sins. God forgave my sins. It's not me who did something clever and get God to cancel the charges against me. God destroyed the charges that were against me. Can we see the difference? See, Paul writes this, doesn't he, in this chapter, when you came to Christ, you were circumcised. Not by a physical procedure, but by a spiritual one, the cutting away of your sinful nature. For you were buried when Christ was buried. And you were raised to a new life when Christ was raised. Notice the when there. Uh, you, you were buried when Christ was buried. Which was 2,000 years before I was even born. And you were raised to Christ when Christ was raised. Now think about those words. Paul writing to people who think they need to some sort of initiation right. Is saying to them, well it's already happened. If you're looking for initiation, right, it's already happened. And it didn't involve harming your body. It didn't involve your movements. It didn't come at any cost to you. It came from the mark of death in the flesh of Christ. Every other God, little g, expects you to go through some sort of physical pain and suffering and some sort of initiation, right, to get to them. But this God, the real God, has gone through it to get to you. You don't need to do anything. Your bookkeeping gods have been stripped and exposed to being the frauds and the fakes that have always been real gods, the real God, saves what he loves. You don't need to coax God to forgive you. The fullness of God was in Christ reconciling you back to him. You didn't, and you do not need to convince some bookie of an idea of God to clear your record for your fancy movements. God, under his own movement, has destroyed the charges against us. You don't need to liberate yourself from all that enslaves you and accuses you. I'm not saying you don't need to do anything. Don't misunderstand me. But God has stripped and disarmed all those things that hold you in the power of all the authority over you. All you need to do is stop following your choreography. Stop clinging to self. And let yourself be swept off in the dance of God. Let his grace grasp you and it will change you. Define yourself radically as one beloved by God. I know it's a weird way to put it. But what I'm really saying is stop trusting yourself. Trust Christ. Stop trusting yourself. Trust Christ. Christ, faith is an expression of trust in God's character and God's work. When we set our sights on who Christ is and the reality of his nature and his reign and saving work, then as Paul has already written, if we set our sights later, then our lives begin to overflow with thanksgiving for what he has done. And so to put that another way, we don't give in order to get God to give. That's false man-made teaching. We do not give in order to get God to give. We give because God has given We don't forgive in order to be forgiven. We forgive as God has forgiven us. We don't pray to get God to open up his ears to us and bend to us. We pray because God's ear is Psalm 116 verse 2, but it is already bent towards us and already opened us. Jesus says it in the Sermon on the Mount. We pray because our Father already knows our needs. We don't have to babble on and babble on like the other religions do, trying to get God to listen. God is listening. We don't love in order to be loved. We love because he first loved us. We don't serve in order to be served. That's a selfish indulgence, by the way. But we don't serve in order to be served. We serve because doing so retells this service and compassion and physical incarnate, life-giving service that Jesus has already shown towards us. I don't empty myself in order to have some holy union with God. It's his holy union with me when I grasp hold of the fact that God's nature is self-emptying and self-giving. When I learn that that's what I'm meant to look like in the first place. That's what imaging God looks like. We don't live a different life in order for God to give us life. Let me say that again. We don't live a different life in order to get God to give us life. We're learning to live differently because we nourish ourselves In the life that God through Christ has won for us and given to us. Please, don't get it the wrong way around. Or as Paul writes it in Romans 8 and verse 15. You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You received the spirit of adoption. Through which we cry, Abba, Father. Let's pray. Lord, help us. I thank you that you, uh, you know our foibles. You know our fallibilities. And you know our frailties. And our, and our, our just, you know, our falseness sometimes as well, Lord oh God. You know everything there is about us. And so, in confidence, we can come to you. And we can ask you to help us to really grasp who you are. We spend so much of our time questioning your sacrifice for us. Even when we talk about it in our rich religious language, Lord God, we we really in practice, we question it a lot. We still do things in order to convince ourselves that you must love us. Instead of letting you convince us that you love us and that that becomes our starting point, our ground that you want our roots to go into and nourish ourselves. And I know why, Lord God, our lives, none of our lives here are perfect. We all need to change in some level. We all need to work in, in a sense, Lord God, but forgive us for those times when we take the work out of your hands and we put it in our own. When we think it's about us trying to reach you, instead of resting in your reach to us and letting your spirit work in us to change us from the inside, Forgive us in those times when we push you off the dance floor and we just freestyle it and we live life without you, dancing our own steps, thinking that we can impress you. When actually what really impresses us is you is when we trust you and we cling to you in faith and we join in your dance. And so help us to dance with you. Help us not to put trust in our own steps, but help us to trust in the saving work of Jesus Christ. Forgive us, Lord God. It's a silly thing to ask, because you have done. Uh, So forgive us when we ask it, maybe. I don't know, but help us. Help us just to cling to you. Help us to know, Lord God, what it means to call you Abba, Father. And to work out from that principle, Lord God. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen. Amen.